Hi everyone, my name is Mark Marshall. This is a new podcast entitled Anatomy of Tone. Now for a number of years, I've run a website and a blog called Anatomy of Guitar Tone, which is dedicated to uh, all the aspects of playing guitar, whether it be theory or technique uh, or um, or tone on pickups, pedals, amps, guitars, you name it. Um, and that was really wonderful, but I wanted to branch out more because I've gathered so much more information throughout my career as well as a guitar player I'm also a session drummer and session bassist and um, keyboardist and composer produced records and engineered records and musical director projects so uh, I have my feelers out in a lot of different places in the music business I've been doing this a long time and um, I've always considered myself a student of the experience so along the way uh, I've always just documented different ideas or, or how to just get better at whatever it is I was doing and um, and I just really like not only gathering information but like sharing it so I thought that this podcast would be a great opportunity for me to um, branch out from from just the guitar blog to share a lot of my tips about the music business or just making music composing so each week um, the topics might vary a little bit um, but I hope that I'll be able to share a lot of uh, great tips with you I thought the first week I would start with uh, the concept of learning songs um, it took me a long time to develop a really uh, efficient and, um, I don't know, I guess just well laid out plan for learning songs. Um, I'm a, as I mentioned, I'm a session musician in New York City, so as well as having my own projects, I get hired to play with other people. So sometimes um, it's the national artists like Amy Helm or Sister Sparrow and the Dirty Birds or um, uh, it could be uh, with uh, Abby Ahmed or um, a number of different people. Other times, I'm just um, I'm doing um, you know events or, or, or different kind of smaller gigs around um, New York City, and it can vary the amount of material you you have to learn. And um, how I learned music for gigs, I guess, varied a little bit on whether I was doing a tour or a pickup gig, and the amount of material that I had to learn. Um, the timeline really dictates a lot, but um, there are a few things I finally learned about uh, the process of, of preparing material to play that I thought could be helpful to some other musicians out there, and I would share it. Now, I'm sure other people might have really great ideas too, and if you do, send them my way. I'm all ears. Like I said, I always like to learn new information, but let me talk about my process. Um, so, like recently... Um, I got hired to play like an event gig, a corporate gig, which I don't have a ton of experience doing. Most of my career has been recording on people's records or touring more with national acts or internationally with um, with artists. So learning, you know, one set of music and, and traveling all over and playing theaters and um, festivals and stuff um, or clubs. But um, sometimes other gigs come in and uh, sometimes the corporate gigs pay a lot of money and so it makes sense to do them uh, because of the, the actually they often pay more than than the national acts do um, so sometimes you there's gigs and some people choose that as a career path I just hadn't uh, but lately I've had a few opportunities where I've, I've taken them because it makes financial sense so what those gigs entail and, and, and in a future podcast I'm going to talk about different types of gigs and what it takes to do each of those gigs but to um, 
do the, the corporate slash uh, wedding gig, there are uh, a few common traits that they uh, they they always have. One of them is just a mass amount of material. You're most always learning more tunes than you get to play, but you have to be prepared with them. There's often special songs you have to learn for each event, uh, and it's usually the timeline is usually shorter than you'd like and you definitely don't usually get the set list in enough time to be comfortable to really learn things as well as you would like now that may be specific to the new york city region where everything is just a little bit of like being shot out of a cannon um there we don't rehearse here it's like you called for a gig you're really expected to be on on top of your game and just know the material and and be able to step on stage and just work through a set uh, other places, maybe you get a little more time to practice the material, uh, but I think these tips are still helpful um, no matter what. So here's my process. So when I first start learning songs after I get the call sheet or I get the set list is um, I go through uh, with a, um, a highlighter. I actually use an app on my iPad called Good Notes, which allows me to create notebooks. And inside those notebooks, I will... Um, be able to color code and make notes to things. So I copy the set list into good notes, create a notebook for that event. Uh, and then I go through and I, I highlight the songs uh, that I don't know. And I highlight the songs in a different color that I do know. So I have a visual representation of the songs that I already have charted or I do know, and the songs that I have to complete. Uh, from here, I might want to go through and just listen and note the songs that might be very difficult to learn or have uh, where the guitar starts or whatever instrument I'm playing. So if I'm playing drums, I want to know what songs the drums start, which honestly on those gigs is most of them, almost pretty much everyone. Um, or, you know, uh, what the hard parts are. So this way I, I have the most time with the songs that are going to have all eyes on me. Uh, I don't want to spend all my time up front on a song that I'm just playing very minimal background stuff on uh, in, instead of being able to, to every day like check in on something that's difficult to play. Uh, so um, two different things uh, were, were, well, three different things that we're, we're highlighting and notating there is uh, the songs we know, the songs we don't know, and the priority of, of the songs, right? So um, once I do that, uh, then... Um, well, I should say, like, it, it's important to have, like, a systematic method to, to learning these. And you're starting to see that I, I have, I do have a systematic method. And this is the first thing I do every time. Um, so uh, I mentioned the hardest songs. Um, and then what I do is um, I, I also want to make sure I go in and figure out how many days I have before the gig is. Because I want to figure out how many songs I have to learn per day in order to be able to be ready for the gig. Uh, and what's feasible and where I might have to cheat if I can, right? So uh, this allows us to adjust our priorities a little bit too. And hopefully for you, you have a lot of time before the gig and you don't have to stress about it. This week for me, I got asked to do a gig. I got the call sheet on Tuesday. The first gig was on Thursday. So I had two days and I ended up charting 30-some songs uh, for the uh, for the gig, there were more songs on the set list, but thirty were was the actual number of songs that I charted. So I had to be really organized in order to be able to pull that off, and um, and I did what I mentioned with the um, with the marking the list. Now make sure that when you complete a song, that you go back to that list and you either change the color of the highlight or you put a, a note next to it that says it's charted. 
right? You want to notate, make notes of every single part of the process so that you're just really together and organized, okay? So when it comes to actually notating music, uh, some people will ask, well, do I have to know how to uh, read music? Um, you don't have to. You can use your own made-up notation system or whatever works for you to learn songs i think um notation is just one way or, or traditional notation is just one way to like be able to communicate music um it's one that many of us use so it makes it a little more universal to communicate with other musicians but if you don't read music and don't have an interest in it um you don't really have to I, I would recommend it because it's better for archival purposes. If you don't play songs for a couple of years and you have to pull it out and you want to read it, um, it makes it a lot easier than, than reading notes that may be a little more cryptic. And it also, believe it or not, helps you learn songs faster. Uh, some people are more visually based than others. I'm... Uh, not only like orally based but also visually so it helps me sometimes when I don't remember a song to see it in my head when I've written it out uh, you may or may not be that way everybody's different but reading music does actually help you execute some of these short term gigs where there's a fast turnaround um, now when it comes to formatting uh, or making your charts there's a number of ways you can do it. You can use an iPad and pencil and paper. Uh, you can use Sibelius, like a notation software. I orchestrate and compose a lot for film and TV, and I use Sibelius, um, which is like a, a different version of Finale or Dorico, to, uh, to make all my charts for gigs because I'm also using it to orchestrate and write out string arrangements and horn arrangements. So that format works really well for me because I also read music. Uh, I would encourage you to get in that. Uh, I think it's better than paper only because of archival purposes. If you lose a piece of paper, you have the uh, file, the Sibelius file or a PDF stored somewhere, hopefully backed up in the cloud, and you always have access to it. Uh, if you are using paper, I do suggest you use an app like um, uh, Scanner Pro to scan in or a physical scanner to scan every chart you did so you have a record of it. And, and don't, um, don't cut corners on labeling. Make sure you label everything clearly and there's no typos. This is where I'm guilty. I happen to write a lot of typos sometimes because my eyesight is bad and I can't always really see the keyboard. So. Uh, and I found that to be problematic sometimes when searching for songs. So uh, if you have good isolate and it's not a problem for you, take the time to make sure your labeling at every uh, step of the process is, um, is really clean. Now, when it comes to the formatting, one thing I've seen some people do when they make charts is they put the song on and they just start notating the song out as the song is playing. I used to do that. What happens when you just jump in at the beginning of the chart and try doing that is eventually you're going to get caught up. You know, you need to erase something or you have a typo or uh, there's a repeat you have to put in or something happens and the song keeps moving on and you're falling behind and you, you, you're playing this back and forth game with the MP3 or however you're learning it. Uh, what I like to do, uh, and uh, you could use a separate piece of paper for this. I go like 30 bars into Sibelius where I know the song isn't going to reach or even 50 bars and I start writing out the ideas of each section. Right? So usually songs are filled with two to three basic ideas, right? There's, it's a 
four eight chord eight, four sorry four eight bar chord progression that happens over and over again every verse or the choruses tend to be somewhat uniform so I get each of the sections of the song in you know basically like verse one with whatever the riff is or the parts I need to play what the chords are I get chorus one in the same thing the, the chords and whatever the parts are I get the bridge in so now I have like the main components to the song so what I could do is then when I take the mp3 back to the beginning I could just start copying and pasting those to the parts of the song where they go so obviously I would um, you know I've written out I would have written out the intro as well as the the first chorus and bridge so I just cut and paste that to the beginning of the song intro slash instrumental so then I'd paste the first verse in and I'd paste the first chorus in, etc. You know, if you get to the second verse and there's a slight variation, well, then we can cut and paste that and make variations there. But you see, we already have a, a starting form for the song, and we have, like, the basic ideas in. So this kind of prevents the song from just, like, taking off from us, uh, which I think is um, is an, an issue, at least I've, I found it was, and I would get caught up in the writing of it, like, whether it's the technology of the software or something going wrong with the pencil and paper, rather than than the music so if you do the sections first like kind of think of like a scratch pad then and cutting and pasting them or copying them over is um is gonna prevent errors or um yeah definitely will prevent errors but it also speed up the process for you so then i get the form of the song in by copying pasting it and uh and i go through and i make any um any tweaks and that i might need to make now when i first open up the file this is for all you uh, software users that are using Sibelius or Dorico or Finale. Um, before I do write anything in, I will mention that I do some formatting stuff. Um, Sibelius has option for plugins, so there's a plugin there that allows me to just uh, have a bunch of bars and then, and then make them uniform. I usually use four bars uh, per staff or per system. It's easier to read four bars and uh, per line. And also, um, you know, it's, it makes it larger. The, the print is bigger, and I, I do that for myself because my eyesight's not so great. Uh, the other thing is that occasionally you're going to run into a bar of five, you know, five bars or, or something of that nature, and, and then you can adjust. But at least having something pre-formatted uh, allows us to, to move a lot quicker, too. And this goes for working on paper. You have all your bar lines written in um, before you start copying things over. I mean, it's just another thing that can cause lag when you're listening to a song and trying to uh, get all the information in, right? You really want to just plug and play as much as you can. So after I um, have formatted the song, I use my scratch pad to grab the section of the song. Now I'm plugging them into the form of the song and I get all the song done and I, I make sure that uh, there's no typos and everything is reading well. I'm going to uh, do a read through while I'm playing along with the song with my instrument. At this point, I want to make sure that uh, I didn't miss any repeats or uh, there's nothing, you know, is, is funny with any of the notations that uh, that I made. Uh, and if all is well, then I export to a PDF uh, in a folder. And this is, again, where organization is really important. So on my hard drive, uh, and I should mention that my hard drive is backed up in three places, right? So I just can't stress that enough that you should have your information on a hard drive backed up on a second hard drive and then a third backup on the cloud 
Uh, if it's not backed up in three places, it's really not backed up and you will eventually get burnt by that. So my advice is to back it up in three places. So um, on my hard drive, I have a folder named scores. In that folder are more subfolders, right? They might be projects and one of them might be corporate gigs. Right? One of them could be, you know, one of the artists I played with, you know, it could be, um, you know, Abby Ahmed, her set, you know, it could be all her songs in there. So I'm separating it by type of gig, right? Artist versus corporate versus. And then within there, um, I'm gonna, gonna maybe even like break it down more. Um, whatever particular show I'm doing or who I'm working for uh, is gonna have a folder and inside there are gonna be all the, the Sibelius files and all the PDFs. Uh, so everything has a bit of a hierarchy to it and I can trace things and find things. I'm not temporarily putting them on my desktop or in different places. Everything gets rooted to the same location and every score I make goes into the score folder. This just prevents confusion later and you'll know where all your stuff is. And I just make sure that I label very carefully each of the folders what project it's for, make sure that when you're exporting the PDF, uh, the song title is there um, and spelled properly, as I mentioned before. And I have a separate folder in each of these that are called PDF. And in there, I have PDF exports of each of the songs that I make. So to go backwards a little bit, because at this point, we have our, our chart made, right? And, and we should be good. So you just want to keep doing the same process over and over again from every song that we do. You just, you know, go through each of the, the pretty much the steps that I, I, I told you. And I find that, that if I work that way, I was able to do, I mean, I guess I was doing like four to five songs an hour um, in order to prepare for, for this gig. Now, some songs were more complex than others, so some took a little bit more time. But, uh, but still, um, I find that if you get a process and you stick to it, you can learn songs a lot faster than if you're all over the place, you know? Don't forget to take breaks, too. You're going to hit a point where your ears are going to get tired, your eyes are going to get tired. So um, that's the other point about budgeting your time, right? And knowing, like, how long you have before you do a gig. So you can think, okay, well... I know I can take an hour off now and go get a snack or I like to, you know, take a walk in the park or get outside a little bit um, just to kind of refresh the brain because you'll come back and, and be a lot sharper than if you're just kind of trying to plug through the whole day. Um, so in the process of learning songs, uh, let's talk a little bit about the ear training aspect of it. And this is a deep topic and we're not going to go super deep into this today, but I just want to talk about a few fundamentals because I get asked this a lot and people I think struggle with um, being able to figure out songs by ear and a lot of what I was talking about was somewhat dependent on um, learning songs by ear. I learn all my songs by ear with the occasional pulling a song from a real book um, but I still always have to check those because you'd be surprised at the mistakes that are in a lot of transcriptions. Uh, but occasionally I will pull pull something from the real book. I almost never use anything from online. Uh, it's a little bit of the Wild West when it comes to song transcriptions online. Uh, there's just so much inaccurate information out there. I find it takes me more time to figure out where the mistakes are than it is just to transcribe the song. I've been doing this for a long time, so I've developed my ear to be able to hear these things. 
But how do you get your ear there, right? So one of the first things to think about when you're trying to learn a song is to trace the bass notes. This is probably the most important thing. And if you can match the bass note, the bass note has a very important function. And especially in, in pop and rock music, right? It could get a little more complicated in jazz and in classical atonal music. But for a lot of rock and pop and blues, the uh, the root note tells us a lot about the chord. It, it's it's or the bass note, I should say, is uh, is telling us a lot about the chord. Uh, it, it often is the root note of the chord, and if not, it's an inversion, right? Often, um, or a slash chord. But it is, in a lot of ways, functioning as a as a as a root in some way. So if I'm hearing a G note on the bass, right? And, uh, and and I find that in the guitar, it's likely that uh, that the chord has some kind of G relationship. So I'm going to start out with um, G major, see if that matches. I'm going to try G minor, see if that matches, okay? If either of those two don't, I'm going to now jump to an inversion, right? Is it um, is an E minor chord with G as the root? Is an E flat chord with G as the root? because G is acting as the third in each of those chords. Okay, if the third isn't working, I'm gonna try it as the fifth. Okay, is um, is G the fifth of the chord? Is it the C chord with the G in the bass? Right. So I keep moving further and further out uh, as things aren't working. So I'm not gonna start with, you know, the G bass note likely being the, um, you know, the major seventh of an A flat major seventh chord in most rock music. Uh, and and I'm not gonna you know think it's um, you know necessarily like a polychord like a G chord against a um, a D flat chord or something G major chord against a D flat major chord. Uh, it's likely not that for most pop and rock music. It's rock and pop music is largely tonal um, and diatonic. So when you're figuring this stuff out, if you figure out what the bass note is, if you just, first of all, just start with your basic major and minor chords with that as the root note, you're gonna get a lot, a lot of the way there, right? Um, and I think one thing worth mentioning too is you will find as you go through different genres of music, whether it's rock or blues or um, pop or soul or funk, you're gonna find that there are certain voicings or chords that used, get used a lot in those genres of music. So, um, so for instance, like if I play a G major chord with an A on the bass, the low note, that's a very common chord in, um, in R&B, in soul. Um, you could hear Marvin Gaye use it. Um, you could hear a lot of people use it. It's something that's still used in R&B today. And, um, and it gives it a bit of a sus sound, right? Um, a little bit of a different voicing for a sus sound, but that's a sound that gets used uh, a lot. And uh, once you start to get used to hear that sound, uh, you'll be able to recognize it, right? The same thing with like certain voicings of dominant chords in the blues, you're gonna recognize that stuff. So over time, you will start to develop like a recognition of, um, of chord types and, and sounds. So the first thing to do though is just to, to, to train your ear to be able to match those bass notes. Just match the bass notes on whatever instrument you're playing, whether it's guitar, or piano, or bass. 
um, match it, and then if you need to figure out the chords, then you start building from the most obvious from there. So it does help to know a little bit about music theory. You don't have to, but one thing that music theory does is it helps you speed up the process because um, you know there's there's a lot of options, and with music theory, you can eliminate some of the most I don't know say unlikely options. So music theory has really helped me a lot, especially with learning songs in a very short period of time, which happens in my career a lot. I often don't get a lot of time to learn material. And I remember being on tour, and sometimes we'd finish sound check with some artists and uh, then they would say, oh, I think I want to do this other song. You know, and it like, happened to be like right when I wanted to go to catering and get dinner for the night and okay, so I have to go and, and, uh, and learn the song to go on stage and play it after never playing it before. Um, and of course, missing catering and eating cold food after the show. Uh, but I had to learn songs like that really quickly sometimes and music theory... Uh, definitely helped me get through that because I was able to make associations and, and and have different ways to be able to remember the song instead of them just being random positions. So I hope that everyone finds this information useful. Uh, it's just the information that I've gathered over the years from learning. Just I don't even know how many songs I've learned in my career. It's just a, uh, a lot and it's a it's a never-ending process and learning songs even if you're not learning them for gigs or to play out maybe you're learning them to do a jam or just for yourself they're they're transcribing is just a really important process to your development as a musician it's one thing to listen to music or maybe to understand lightly what they're doing but writing it down and really getting under the hood really helps cement that information inside of you right it just really locks it in in a way that it, it won't even if you just hear somebody talk about it or watch somebody do it so i encourage you to um, try out some of these techniques whether you're you're playing in a in a band and you gotta learn some songs or you have to learn a lot of material really quickly or you're working with a new artists and um and see if it uh, if it works well for you and gives you more time to be able to work on the creative process of it. That was one of the reasons that I really became interested in the efficiency of doing this was um, if I could make charts pretty efficiently, then I would have more time to experiment with sounds, figure out like what pedals I'd want to use on a gig or what instrument I want to use, what amp I wanted to use, um, and get deeper into expression and, and playing the parts. Uh, if you have to spend all your time learning the songs, then you don't really get to uh, dig into some of the other important aspects of the music. They, they get sacrificed because the first important thing is making sure that you're playing the right notes, right? Um, so I really kind of got into learning uh, about how to efficiently do it to allow myself more time to, uh, especially when I'm going on tour and, and a set that's really it's like a microscope you're listening if like somebody would be observing with uh cells in a microscope those type of gigs tend to be a lot more uh well people pay attention to them more right so uh corporate gigs are kind of the background music but when you're playing a theater people are there to hear you play and the dynamics that you play with and the sounds that you develop all these things are, are 
are very uh, important, more so in those situations. So the combination of sounds that you get, and even if you're only using one sound for the set, it's really important that that sound is there. So um, it's always good to make sure you buy yourself enough time to, um, you know, to do that. talk about one of my favorite chorus pedals and that is the Analog Man Mini Chorus. Now there are two chorus pedals that I really like a lot. I've tried many of them and if you listen to enough of my podcast or read my blog on Anatomy of Guitar Tone, you're going to see that I'm pretty particular about tone. It doesn't mean I'm right, it just means that I'm particular about what works for me and I try to share that information to others. I'm pretty into replicating authentic sounds uh, and so I don't use multi-processor pedals and stuff everything I use is pretty much analog or um, as close to analog as it can be and it's pretty authentic in its tone uh, I will use bigger pedals and special power supplies or whatever I have to do in order to be able to get the uh, organic original sound rather than an approximation so that's sort of my angle um, with gear and tone in general so it's just good to go on this with that in mind right so when I've tried pedals like the TC electronics chorus or as it was at the corona chorus uh, I just didn't like it that much I mean it was okay at first but there was just something about it that was a little plasticky and and lacked some sort of authenticity to it uh, and I've tried various other chorus pedals too um, from Boss like their newer chorus pedals which is kind of ironic I didn't like it because they pretty much invented the first chorus pedal the Boss CE1 chorus which is an amazing circuit but even on that I don't really like the buffer I'm not really into buffers now you either are or you aren't there's nothing wrong with using a buffer if that's your vibe that's totally cool. I just don't really like the sound of them that much. It um, it thins out the sound to me. I always hear it. It never sounds better with it into my ears. Now, that's just my preference. Now, the thing I like about the Retrosonic Chorus is that it doesn't use a buffer, and nor does the Analog Man Mini Chorus. So those are favorable to me. First, because I can get the CE1 sound minus the buffer, uh, and the same thing with the, the Analog Man. Now, the Analog Man Mini Chorus emulates the electroharmonic small stone now not the small stone they um the the, the uh, small clone right uh this this is the chorus sound that a lot of us know from nirvana's lithium uh, it's a really a great sound and it, somehow he improved it i mean it's a little warmer at least than the reissue small clones which can have a little bit of a plasticky weird high-end thing in them um the mini chorus from Analog Man is just a little warmer sounding, but with the same lovely chorus. It's Bucket Brigade, so it's um, it's fully analog, and it's um, it's nice. It's got a fairly small footprint, which I think is is useful. And Mayan has a mix knob on it, and it has a, a depth switch. So uh, some models of the Analog Man, you can um, 
add on or not have certain features added on. You can just have the um, rate and, and initial depth knob on there if you like. But I like to tweak a lot in the studio, and so uh, I got more options. Now, um, as I mentioned, there are so many chorus pedals on the market. Um, the TC Electronic Vintage one is, is pretty cool. I had it, but it still didn't quite hit me the way that these two do. Um, and I don't know, if you're a real big fan of, of chorus, and it's really hard to use something that, that isn't quite... I don't know. It, to me, I just I want to have that feeling that I have when I listen to old records and bands that used chorus and, and that sound, whether it be on synth or bass or guitar. And, um, and so I sought out uh, very specific chorus pedals that did that. Now there's some pedals, and I'm not gonna throw shade here too much, but uh, I feel like they're more like um, a Swiss Army utility knife or they're approximations, you know? So you can get them and yes, they do a chorus. Okay, cool, you know, but it it's sort of, um, I would use the word generic and I mean that to be harsh, but uh, they're somewhat generic, right? They don't stand out. They're not particularly authentic, or they don't add like a special um, magic that that like say the Analog Man Mini Chorus does. Uh, this is definitely a pedal that adds that magic. You know, it really is. If you're back in the uh, the 80s again, um, or the 90s, right? It really can can put you back, and that's what sound does to me. I feel like. I'm attached to sound is like nostalgic to me. Um, I do like forward leaning technology as well, but when it comes to vintage effects, like it's, it's, um, you know, it's just, I want to, a sound will take me back. So, uh, but like a poor approximation of it won't. So it's kind of an emotional thing that, that happens to me. I, I, uh, it just creates memories. I know what that felt like in that time period. And so hearing it authentically done puts me there. So with that being said, I think the analog man really does a killer job at that. It's um, it's fantastic, and uh, he's you know, analog Mike is just sort of on another level when it comes to making guitar pedals. I I really appreciated his work for a long time. I have a bunch of his pedals. I've got his fuzz pedals. I have his analog delay. I've got the treble booster. I've got one of his compressors, uh, and there's a reason for that. Uh, he's just dedicated to using the best components and making sure that things sound right. So it's one thing to just have all the components and put them together, but it's another thing to actually know what those original circuits sounded like. And that might be one thing that's missing from some pedals. I've noticed this with fuzz pedals and a couple other pedals is that I feel that, that sure, a lot of people can make a tone bender circuit, but they don't know how to tune them they're not as familiar with the the vintage circuits or they haven't played enough of the old ones to really understand certain essences about them and so they're not the same so they're missing something there and sure you go i've got this vintage uh, transistor in it or you know but it, it's not you know there's something um missing right but analog mike gets it and so not only is he using high-end premium parts but he's also knows and has a lot of experience of what they should sound like. Um, and you know what's great is he's not overcharging. I mean, his fuzz pedals are reasonable in comparison to what some other people are charging for basically remaking vintage circuits. It's, it's insane. I mean, look at the tone bender market. I mean, uh, 
it's just insane that people are charging over a thousand dollars for a Mark One tone bender. I mean, it's uh, it's just that baffles me. Um, but you know, analog Mike's not not trying to do that. He's making faithful recreations of these circuits uh, that are as authentic as it gets, and he's not gouging the price. They're not cheap pedals. I mean, if you're comparing them to whatever the the cheapest line is on Amazon, but. Uh, but I think for a boutique hand-built pedal, they're extremely reasonable and they will last forever, you know, which is a plus to it. So, the mini cores. I'm going to play a few things. I'm going to start off with playing a Prophet 10, which is a, a vintage synth that was created in the late 70s and uh, used a lot in the 1980s. And it's really a great synth to use chorus on then I'm going to switch to some guitar and we'll listen to a few examples of, of what that sounds using the uh, the Analog Man chorus so let's start out listen to the analog man mini chorus run into a fox ac15 with uh, a stratocaster with fsc 59 pickups into it i'm also running the analog man ardx 20 delay on here but there's no modulation happening on the delay Thank you. 
Well, I hope that gave you a basic idea of how the Analog Man Mini Chorus sounds. There's the interesting thing about the additional depth switch on it is that it almost um, it sounds to me, and I haven't checked the manual, but it sounds like it's acting like it's different wave shapes, almost as like it's square or sine or triangle when you, depending on which direction that you um, you turn it. And you could really hear that by cranking up each of the um, the knobs and, and turning the depth on. So if I just do, let me see, let me crank everything up here. Let's just listen to a chord. Let's do the speed a little slower. You could hear it affecting the signal differently each time. Um, I'd say the intensity that it's, it's, it's applying the modulation to, really cool, because uh, it can really allow it to be more subtle, almost like you know, a, um, a Dimension D chorus, um, or you can really make it thick, like with the depth switch on the um, original Electroharmonic small clone. So to close this up, I would just basically like to say that you know, I really think this is a fantastic chorus circuit. Uh, on top of it being a very reliable pedal. And the reliability is an important issue. I really feel like the new electroharmonic pedals and even some of the ones in the 90s weren't very reliable. Uh, they fell apart fairly easily and switches would break on them. And uh, it's not really great when you have to rely on it for a gig. So with the Analog Man pedals, I'd fly all over the world with them and uh, tour with them and play them every night. And I never worried about them breaking down uh, aside from expecting regular wear and tear, uh, wasn't expecting any surprise um, mishaps, and I, I didn't experience any. They're extremely reliable, so I think it's worth the extra money just for that alone, the peace of mind when you're gigging or on a session. Um, but again, I think this is a, the Analog Man Mini Chorus is a fantastic sounding pedal. So um, if you have anything that you thought was really cool, feel free to send a note to me I'd love to know your thoughts as well as well you can email me at anatomyofguitartone at gmail.com and uh, any thoughts on the show or requests for subjects for me to talk about I'd be glad to include or answer any questions in, in future episodes so um, I hope everybody has a great week and enjoys making music and until next time <laughs>